Yes, we are back in the gospel according to John. So if you have a Bible open there with me, I'm going to have a reading, a scripture reading um, this morning, and then we'll dismiss the kids. So the gospel according to John, Bible's in the back if you need one. John chapter 10, we will be reading together. We are back into the series called The Invisible Made Visible. Uh, An exposition of the gospel according to John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as we begin this fall season together. So, we're in John 10. Verse 22, hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Of which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. We'll dismiss the kids, uh, children to Children's Church. There's been some changes back there. I'm sure some of the hospitality team, if uh, you're not sure what classroom, we made some slight changes in order to have both nursery and Children's Church for both services, 9 and 11. We are in John 10. The Invisible Made Visible. It's been about two and a half months since we gathered together and looked at this book And I thought what we ought to do is maybe take a jet tour through the book, but as I started to prepare, the jet tour became more like a long-distance journey. So I said, no, I can't do that. Um, So what we're going to do, I think, just because some people maybe are new here or haven't been through the book with us, what I thought we would do is look at the beginning, the prologue of John, verses 1 through 18, quickly, and then look at the purpose statement at the end of the book. And these two bookends, the beginning prologue and the end bookends of purpose, kind of is what John is all about. It kind of, it's kind of two bookends that kind of you know, give us the backdrop of what John is all about. So I'm hoping as we do that, we can jump into the book together. You'll see the beginning prologue and the end and what the book is about is impacted right in between. So John opens up, if you, if you have a Bible, John 1, let's just look at the prologue for a, moment, for a moment. John's prologue opens up with the eternality of the word, the eternality of the word. In the very, very, very well-known verse, John 1, 1, it says, John opens up his prologue saying, in the beginning was the word. Just like Genesis, it reminds us of Genesis, in the beginning God. So John right out of the box says, the word was already in existence before the heavens and the earth was made. The word existed, as Genesis 1-1 declares, from all eternity. John says the word, which is the Greek word logos, if 
you never heard that term before, logos is an important Greek term in John's day especially. The Stoics understood it to be the, this personal, excuse me, impersonal force governing the universe, the, the, the essence of human rational thought. The Jews understood the Logos, the Word of God, being his self-expression in creation, in revelation, in, 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 in salvation. God's Word created the universe. God's Word reveals who he is. And John tells us that the Word, the Logos, was with God. Prostantheon in the Greek, it means, it's a very important phrase, intimate, face-to-face relationship with God. And the Word was God. John couldn't get any more clear that the Word was with God, the Word was face-to-face with God, and the Word was God. As Christians, we believe, the Scripture teaches, and John is clearly telling us here, that there is only one God, yet He is distinctive in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal in every way. And John could not have written it in the Greek language, the original language, any more clear that God, the Word is God, yet the Word is distinct in person, face-to-face with God. Couldn't be any more clear. And the Logos, John tells us, because some people say, well, Jesus is a created being. The Logos, he says in verse 2, makes it very clear. Anyone who thinks Jesus is a created being, there's cults all over that believe that Jesus was a created being. He says in verse 2, He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things, unmark that in your Bible, all things were made through Him. Some people say, well, all doesn't mean all. It means almost everything, and yet Jesus was created, then after Jesus was created, he created all things. Some people read that into the text. John knocks it out of the park, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. (laughs) Can't get any more clear and explicit than that. Nothing was made outside of the Word. The Word was not created, but the Word was the agent of all creation. And John tells us who this word is. Look at verse 14. John 1, 14. And the word, who is with God, who is God, who created all things, and the word became flesh, infleshed, incarnation, and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only, unique, only, son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness... We have received grace upon grace. I love that. We received grace upon grace. Grace upon, stacked up grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is in the Father's side. He has made him known. The uniqueness of the Son making the Father known. Dr. Tim Keller, love what he says about this incarnation. He said, God has not given us a watertight argument to prove Christianity is true. He has given us a watertight person in the incarnation. The infinite became finite. The immortal becomes mortal. The ideal becomes real. The supernatural becomes natural. The metaphysical becomes physical. The invulnerable becomes vulnerable. The impossible becomes possible. And the Holy One becomes someone you can hug. I love that, end quote. John opens this prologue of the gospel according to John, pointing to Jesus and his eternality, his beginning, his, his, his non-beginning, his eternal existence. And then look at John chapter 20, if you have it. 
opens up with this prologue. And then John 20, the other bookend, it's wonderful because it gives us what the purpose is for. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in his book, couldn't cover it all. But these are written in between prologue and the end. These things are written so that you may what? Believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. When John talks about the Son, he's talking about the uniqueness of the same nature as the word of, the Son of God, of the same nature as the Father. Not just a child of God as as we are as his children when we receive Christ. So John, the gospel according to John, I'll just say this, and then we'll move on, is that these two bookends are here. You have the eternal Son, the Word who's with God face to face, who is God, the triunity of God, one God, three person, comes in the flesh, he speaks, he works and performs miracles and signs so that you may come to believe who he says he is. And by believing on Christ, by trusting in Christ, by yielding to Christ, you'll have eternal life. That's what John's all about. So when we see the first miracle, say in John 2, that when he turns water into wine at Cana, we see that miracle that says that Jesus manifested his glory. It's pointing to who he is. We see in John chapter 3, Nicodemus being told by Jesus that he must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, even see the kingdom of God. And then he says, look to me at the cross, and that can all happen through the sacrifice of Christ. When he's going up to the mountain and feeding 5,000 people with two fish, plus, plus children, 5,000 people plus children and women uh, with five loaves and, and bread, and then walks on water, he's pointing. Those are pointers to the person and reality of who Jesus is. We saw in this book, and just bring you one last thing I want to point out, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish feasts. God had commanded the Jews to have certain feasts throughout the year. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Tabernacle, Yom Kippur, and other things. And we saw in the Gospel according to John that Jesus is the fulfillment of those feasts, that he is the true and better Passover. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and was slain for us. Jesus, the true and better Moses, who didn't just give bread from heaven, but gave himself who came down from heaven. He's the better and greater manna. Jesus, the true and better festival of booths or tabernacles, for he dwelt among us. Jesus is the true and better water from the rock, we saw. Even though Moses had provided water for the Israelites during their wandering, Jesus is the true and better water who said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, ever thirst again. Jesus is the true and better illumination. We saw how the temple was illuminated during one of the festivals. And that's when Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I'm the light of the world. But you will have the light of life. You see, this gospel account is not just written so that you trust him, love him, and see who he truly is. That is true. But it's also for believers who have been so comforted by this book that we keep on believing that that we've come to the place of encouragement, sustaining encouragement and trust and treasuring Christ. And I have talked to many of you. This gospel account has been a good study for you. You have learned and loved and treasured Christ more as we continue to look through this book. So you have two bookends, the eternality of Christ, who he is in eternity, God the Son, and yet 
John 20 says, the purpose of me writing this is that you have faith in Christ and that you're sustained and encouraged and strengthened in Christ. That's the book. So as we jump into our text this morning, we will look at it in four headings. I want to see how we got, we got another feast coming on. Now it's the Feast of Dedicate. A lot of feasts in the book of John. The Passover feast. There's an unnamed feast. He's kind of, it's not just chronological, it's theological too, as Jesus' fulfillment of the feast. We see another feast, John chapter 10, verse 22. Um, and they have a simple request of the Savior. We'll have the Savior's response. He, he responds to their, to their request and uh, answering their question. Then he talks about the separation reality of the sheep and those who aren't his sheep, and then we'll end with a secured relationship. So we're not going to get through this chapter. We'll finish up next week. So let's look first at John chapter 10, verse 22. What is the Feast of Dedication? The Feast of Dedication um, is not in the Old Testament. Where you find the Feast of Dedication is between what's called the intertestamental period. It is what many of us know as the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. Anybody hear Hanukkah? Yeah, we are Hanukkah. It's the Feast of Life. It's when they had that menorah. You see some of the menorah with nine lights on it. And the center one is lit, and then they light all the other ones. And they light one each night for eight nights. If you know anything about Hanukkah, uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But it started back in 19, excuse me, 167 B.C., way before 1900. Uh, this, uh, a Syrian by the name of Antichus Epiphanes, E-P-I-P-H-A-E-N-S, overtakes Jerusalem, and he conquers Jerusalem, and what he does is he, he, he desecrates the temple, and he builds their own altar to a pagan god, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar of God and the, in the altar of um, burnt offerings. Jews are very angry. He starts slaughtering the Jews, 167, 166, 165 B.C. The Jews finally, under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, recaptures the temple. They attack the, 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 the people who are desecrating the temple. And they reclaim, in 164 B.C., the temple. And they take back Jerusalem. And they consecrate the, 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 the altar of God back to God in the 25th of what's called Kislev, which is December. So the Jews have this, and you can find it in an in, uh, intertestamental period between the Old Testament closing, the New Testament opening. Uh, the, the Catholic Church calls it the Apocrypha books. They're not scripture, but they're good historical record of what took place. And you'll find this incident in that, in that era. And during Jesus' day, they were celebrating this, this week-long feast and remembering of the rededication of the temple of God. So when you pick up in verse 22, it says, At the time of the feast of Hanukkah, dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was what? Winter. It's cold. It's December. And Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. It's December. It's cold. Jesus is in the colonnade of Solomon. They were, they were large roofed porches with large columns on the east side of the temple. It was a place because it was winter where you would get away from the elements and the wind and the, and the cold. And it was a place where people would gather and rabbis would be regularly teaching in that area. Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 5, you find the, uh, the early church meeting in the colonnade of Solomon. It would be a regular place. And what's interesting is, if you see what this says in the next verse, it says that the Jews gathered around him and requested an answer to a rather interesting but pointed question. They asked him, how long will you keep us in suspense? 
How long have you got? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Just let us know. The word Christ, the Greek word Christos, the anointed one, the, the anointed king. Hebrew is Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Tell us, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now, if you've been tracking with us, Jesus has been somewhat clear as, as he's been teaching and demonstrating miracles of who he truly is. Whether, whether it's things he did, whether it's things he claims, in all other ways, he's pointing to the reality of John 1.1 on who he is. So why the question? That's the first question I ask myself. Why, why are they asking the question? What are they really getting at? Well, here's a clue. The word gathered around, you see it says it gathered around him. <laughs> that word means to encircle. That word means not only to encircle, but that word could mean to close in on him or hem in on him. You ever been in a dark place at the mall or somewhere close and all of a sudden you have a sense of people surrounding you? It's a little unsettling. Like they're not gathering around Jesus to say, hey, we're having a party, will you come? They encircled him. They came out and they, and they closed him in. Another clue is, many scholars point out that the question that they asked him, that they asked him, why are you keeping us in suspense, can be translated, how long are you going to annoy us? There's, there's a certain kind of agitation in, there, in, there, in that question in the original language. They're, they're not seeking to, to clarify Jesus so that they can find out who he is and bow down and worship him. What they're trying to do, and we've seen this all the time, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say something that would be adequate enough to attack him. So Jesus is surrounded. And yeah I, yeah, I mean, there is some sense of, you know, he taught a lot of parables, especially in the Jewish culture and the Jewish setting. But they were trying to kill him, and they were trying to kill him oftenly. So you have to ask the question, or at least realize that they kind of knew who he was. It wasn't like they had no idea, which just being totally honest about the question, which brings us to our application this morning. It's a good question to ask. There's, there's a good question, who are you? Are you the Christ? Can you tell us plainly? Who do you say that you are? Are you who you say you are? Questioning Jesus, questioning who Jesus is, it can be appropriate. And maybe some of you are here at that point, and you're asking the question, honestly, who is Jesus? But here's the problem. Sometimes we ask that question, who are you, Lord, when we really don't want to know the answer. We really don't want to know the answer because if Jesus is who he says he is and he's king of kings and lord of lords, there's only really one thing we have to do is not give up control of our life. If he's king of kings, lord of lords, then we have to give up our control of our lives and recognize him as the lord of our life. But pride tells us, no, we don't want to do that. No one tells me what to do. I'll decide what's right and what's wrong. And unfortunately, if you read the scriptures, that's what kicked Satan out of the presence of God. Not a good idea. The second way you can ask this question, who is Jesus? Are you really savior of the world? But then come to Jesus and, and filter what he's saying through your own interpretation. Through your own interpretation, things like, you know what, Jesus is really teaching us some really nice things. I mean, I expect him to come in from the outside with his zipper up sweater, right? He's taking his shoes off, be my neighbor kind of guy. 
But over and over in Scripture, what you find is when people come to the reality of what Jesus is really saying, they either fall down and worship him or they get angry and they want to kill him. Some in that day, in Jesus' day, were filtering his revelation, his unveiling of himself through their own mind because the word Messiah had military connotation to it. They had this, this military and political leader they were looking for. If you remember back in chapter 5, Jesus goes up to the mountain and feeds the people a, a Moses-like uh, a miracle. Moses was the great liberator. They're like, Jesus, you're the liberator. And they try to take him by force. You see, they wanted freedom. They wanted freedom from external oppression. And, and you know what? I hate to say it, but I'm going to. We get caught like that up in America too. We, we, we want to have this external peace, but we fail to see the internal slavery called sin and how much we need Christ more than we need a new president. We need Christ Jesus said it very succinctly. I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He is first the suffering servant, not the military king they were looking for. So we cannot just ask the question, who are you? Are you the savior of the world? And filter it through our own lens. Family, listen. Listen to the word and look at the deeds of Christ honestly. It's not a matter of speculation or personal interpretation or even education. It is about and a matter of revelation. God has revealed himself in his word perfectly and finally. And we have to get to the place to have the right question. So I'll challenge your motive this morning. Are you asking, Lord, really honestly reveal yourself to me? I want to know. And when I hear the voice and when I know who you are, as you want to reveal yourself to me, I will follow you and lay down my own lordship for you are Lord. I hope you're ready to do that. Now look at the Savior's response. Verse 25. Jesus told him, Jesus said to him, notice this in your Bible, verse 25, I told you. Lord, who are you? Make it plain to us. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I told you, the works I do bear witness about me. Jesus is pointing back to the things he said, to the things he's done. Now, nobody, everybody I read, no one knows exactly what he's talking about. Like, what exactly did he do? What exactly did he say that he's pointing to here? And I don't, I don't know if Jesus has one thing in mind. Because everything he did pointed in one direction to the fact that he has shown himself to them and to us as we read this book together. Let me point to two things I think that's very important. Kind of, well, this is kind of like a recap a little bit too. John chapter 5, this is what Jesus says. Jesus said to the religious leaders, Truly, truly, solemnly take it to the bank. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus was talking to the religious leaders who were angry with him for healing a man, a paraplegic man, on the Sabbath day. And they said, you are violating the Sabbath, which he was not. 
And Jesus tells them, just as the Father works on the Sabbath, I too, I too work on the Sabbath. And because I am the unique Son of God, as God works, I work. As God himself is working on the Sabbath, I too am working on the Sabbath. A monumental claim. He claims in that same chapter that he has the same prerogatives and authority and exclusive rights to grant life. Who could say that? To final judgment of all people? Who could say that? And to be worshipped as God? Who could say that? Then in John 8, 58, Jesus said, and, and this is, again, monumental. Jesus works, and now Jesus says, Truly, truly, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to kill him. Pointing to the personal name that God used, Yahweh used in Exodus 3 to Moses. The everlasting, eternal, no beginning, no end, self-existent one. And Jesus takes that personal name and uses it for himself. And the place goes wild. John 10, 18, I have authority to lay down my life. I have the authority to take it up again. Now, you may have authority to take your life, but you do not have the authority. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to take my life and I'll be back in a day. I don't think so. Jesus said, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to pick it back up. John 20, 28, Thomas sees him after his resurrection and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts his worship and calls it faith. I believe it's safe to conclude that he made it clear to them. So why are they requesting this question? I think, it's, I think it's right to say to request an answer to a simple question can be a good way to get information, right? You talk to your kids, just a real simple question. Or a politician, yes or no, they never have one. 20 minutes later, you're still like, all right, can we go back to the question because I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Just yes or no. A good way to get information if the evidence that's before them, the plain speaking is lacking. So you ask, but if it's present... And everything is evidence is there before you. The only really reason we want, oh, make it really clear to us, is because we, want, we don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to take responsibility. We want to avoid and, and do shift blaming because we're just trying to get out of this. The evidence is clear, uh, but can you ask this question? Well, I already answered that. Go to your room. Oh, do this or do that. Say you're driving down the throughway, You're doing 85. Don't do it, but let's say you are. All right, say 75. You're doing 75. The state police pulls you over. You pull over, you roll down the window, and the state police comes to you and says, what are you doing? Don't you know that the speed limit is 65? And you respond, you know, that's a really good question. That's that's a good question. I mean, do I know the speed limit is 55? I was wondering about that question. Is it 65? Is it 75? Uh, I was going around 80 sometimes, and he would say, I know, but... Didn't you see the signs back there? Didn't you see the evidence? Didn't you see the signs? And you say, oh, yeah, that sign. I, yeah. Actually, it was like a mile or so back, wasn't it? It seems to me that if the state wants us to stay in the speed limit, it should mark it very plainly, like every 10 feet as you point out the window. And then the state police is going to say to you, I'm sorry, I stopped you. I, I see your point. I, I don't see any signs really any 10 feet, so go your way. I'll go make sure they're put up right away for you. Like, that's not going to happen. You're going to get a ticket. And the fault is not in the signs. 
The fault is in the driver who doesn't want to follow regulations and would rather be his own authority and think he rules the roost or the road. It's a good idea not to tell God who has given us adequate evidence, revealed to us plain truth, especially in the gospel according to John, that he hasn't given us enough evidence, enough signs. Rather be honest. Lord, I, I, don't, I don't want to hear what you have to say. At least at that place, he could break your heart rather than living a life of denial and, and deception and have that lead you to repentance and faith in Christ. Here's the deal. You and I cannot just fit Jesus into our own belief system. We can't fit Jesus into our own religion and philosophy. We, Jesus becomes the cornerstone, and he needs to become the cornerstone on which everything and all of reality is constructed so that you can't stuff Jesus into your own thinking. You have to start with him and let him, by his authority, by his word, by his deeds, determine your belief structure. Otherwise, you got it backwards. And throughout the gospel of John, he wants us to move past our own reasoning and look at the clear evidence of the beauty and the glory of Christ. Even the incredible miracles we saw in John People were running toward the power of the miracle. They, were, they wanted the bread. They wanted things from Jesus, but they didn't want Jesus. So just getting a miracle take place and seeing it doesn't always necessarily mean you love the Savior. Jesus said, I told you and you do not believe. You witnessed my miracles, but you do not believe. You witnessed all the signs that pointed to me, but you still do not believe. And that's a sad place. I hope nobody's in that place today. As you're reading the Gospels, you're listening to Christ, as you see his work, his ministry, the point is come to him, as we shall see when we close. The separating reality, look at verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus gets right to the heart of their unbelief. Their unbelief is, a, is, is not a lack of sufficient evidence so that they can come to this conclusion of who he really is. It is due to their failure and brokenness and hardness of his heart, of their heart. Their rejection of the Messiah is due to their stubborn refusal to come and to believe. And look what it says, the text. Their lack of belonging to the one true shepherd. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, two sides of theological Understanding, people love that verse. You do not believe, it's your decision to make, but because you're not my sheep, you're not going to believe. And they argue about it. I say both. I say right here in this text, it teaches us that we have responsibility and that God is sovereign. You hear it all the time in Scripture, you hear it all the time from me. This verse teaches us that man is responsible for their decisions, and yet God is sovereign over his sheepfold. Both truths run throughout Scripture. Pastor Alistair Begg, some of you may know him, he said this, to deny either one, human responsibility and God's sovereignty, to deny either one is foolishness, to harmonize them in time with a finite mind is impossible, to bow before the mystery and trust upon God is peace and liberty. That is so true. You, he says, you... Do not believe divine sovereignty because you are not my sheep. But that doesn't give us, 
And some people will read that scripture and say that we're not responsible and that it's God's fault that we don't come. And that's not what it says. There's no, there's no, there's no excuse given here. In fact, the, the sheep does not in any way uh, don't come can blame God. In fact, their unbelief is an indictment to them. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said to, to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, you think in the scriptures that you have eternal life. But the problem is, you will not come. Actually, that's what it says. You refuse to come. You won't come to me that you may have life. And Jesus says, and the reason that is, he, he, he tells them, is because you receive glory and honor to yourself. You refuse to come and get glory and honor from me. You are busy in your morality. You are busy in trying to do your own deeds. And you refuse to come because you're trying to justify yourself. Turn a blind eye. They lost the ability to come. One cannot blame God. R.C. Sproul, Bill Skiff's favorite. That's when we're going to have Sproul, a Sproul quote today. He wrote a book called Chosen by God. Sproul gives a good illustration on how and why God is not responsible and that you are responsible when you refuse to come to believe in Christ. He says this. He says, picture a man... Picture God saying to a man, I want you to trim these bushes by 3 p.m. So God speaks to a man and says, I want you to trim these bushes by 3 p.m. And then God said, there's a large pit at the edge of the garden. If you fall into the pit, you won't be able to get out yourself. So don't go near the pit. As soon as God leaves the garden, the man runs over and jumps into the pit. At 3 p.m., God returns and finds the bushes untrimmed. He goes over to the pit. He sees the man in the bottom of the pit. He can't get out. God says to the man, why haven't you trimmed the bushes? And the man angrily, angrily uh, replies, how do you expect me to trim these bushes when I'm trapped in this pit? If you hadn't left this pit here, I wouldn't be in this predicament. <laughs> and Sproul says, you know, Adam jumped into the pit when he sinned and rebelled against God. And God imputes Adam's sin to the entire race. He's the head of the covenant. And there's been sin ever since. And we are helplessly incapacitated by our own sin and yet we are held responsible to respond. But we choose sin unless God intervenes. And God is constantly calling and pouring out his spirit and drawing people, his sheep, to himself. John Calvin writes, If anyone murmur at this, arguing that the cause of unbelief dwells in God because he alone has power to make sheep, he says, I reply that he is free from all blame. For it is only by their voluntary malice that men reject his grace. God does all that is necessary to induce them to believe. Who shall tame the wild beast? That's us. This will never be done until the Spirit of God changes us into sheep. They who are wild will in vain attempt to throw on God the blame, it's easy to blame, of their wildness, for it belongs to their own nature. End quote. Jesus says, you fail and you're responsible to believe, but you are not part of my sheep. But, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So Jesus keeps his sheep, knows his sheep, understands his sheep, and the evidence of being sheep is what? They follow him. They follow me. And they follow me. Jesus is back into the shepherd analogy, which he used in the beginning of the chapter. Verse 3 says, my sheep hear my voice, I lead them out. 
Verse 27, they, they hear my voice, they follow me. Back in verse 9, Jesus says, If you enter by the door of the sheep, the, by, the, by the sheepfold, by the sheep pen, by the door, which is the door, you will find what? Pasture. You will be saved and find pasture. And here he says, If you know my voice, they will follow me. I think one of the things, a couple of months ago, I think it was back in the spring, I showed a video of a shepherd in a pen and all these kids, if you remember, shouting out for the sheep, shouting for the sheep and the sheep paid them no mind. And, and they, all the kids, they were laughing, I don't know if you remember that, but then the shepherd of the sheep comes out and says, and calls them and all of a sudden their heads perk up. And the emphasis was on the voice of the shepherd. But let me ask this question because this is application as well for the text. If and when Jesus speaks through his word, do you know the voice of Jesus? He knows you by name. Do you, do you read the scripture and hear the voice of Jesus? If the spirit of God was to speak to you, would you know it was Jesus' voice? We're going to get to John 14 and 16 and we'll see how the Holy Spirit speaks. He speaks in the voice of Jesus. Would you know it? Do you know the voice of the Savior through Scripture and know the difference between them, him and the enemy? You ever, maybe you have family, children, maybe you were, you, you, you were younger when you played outside and they had to call you. I know a lot of people don't play outside these days, but you were far away and, and your father would open up the door. There would be a whistle. There would be something. And you're like, yep, that's me. I got to go. I know that voice. There would be a thousand voices going on. You know that voice. Like, I got to go now. There's only one concrete, objective way to recognize and accustom to and grow familiar with the voice of the shepherd, and that is the Word of God. Yes, the Spirit can speak to you, He impresses truth upon you. If God is speaking audibly to you every day, talk to me after the service, we'll, we'll get you some help. Um, but the Holy Spirit does bring truth and speak and press in, truth in your heart. He does for me regularly, teaching me about my sin and my selfishness. But here's the deal a lot of people, some people, maybe you fit in this category, if you're not regularly in God's word, if you're not regularly under the teaching of God's word, if you're not reading scripture yourself, and then you have these decisions to make, you're like, uh, I need to hear the voice of God. Well, you, are you in the scripture? Would you know the difference? Too often people want to hear the voice of God now and not in the voice of God regularly. I want to encourage you to be in the scripture. You'll know the voice of Jesus and the voice of the enemy. You know what direction you should go and what direction you don't go when you're in the scripture. That's where Jesus speaks most clearly and plainly and authoritatively. The final voice. Scripture. Let's end with this secured relationship. Verse 28. I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. No one, Jesus speaking, will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, he's talking about eternal security. It's a close-handed issue for me. No one will slap, snatch them out of my hand. Those who enter into the sheepfold through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ are secured in that sheepfold. That's what Jesus is saying. John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me, talking about the sheep, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
What is that will, Lord Jesus? Will you tell us? Yes, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last days. Jesus is telling believers, when you come to him, you've been given to him by the Father. All that the Father gives me, they're in my hand. They belong to me. They hear my voice. I give them eternal life. It's not just now. It's in eternity. It's, it's, it's present and future. And they will never, emphatic, double negative, never, never, ever perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You see that? Not the wolves in verse 12, not the thieves and robbers in verse 1 and 8. No one will be able to catch, snatch them out of my hand. If they were able to, Jesus would not be fulfilling his calling. All that the Father will give me, I will not lose. The will of the Father is that I keep everyone he has given me. Oh, this one dropped out. Oh, I guess you failed, Lord. Not possible. Not possible. The precious truth is not our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. I was reminded this week how many times I've taken my daughters out when they were small and they're holding on to the finger. You know how they hold on to the finger and you're walking across and they think, I better hold on to him because if I let go, something's going to happen. You're like, you can let go all you want. You ain't going nowhere. Yeah, you're holding on to my finger, but if you let go, I'm grabbing you, right? First Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept by the power of God, guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed. Listen, faith brings us into a grace relationship with God as a gift through the merit of his son. We are saved, we are his, we belong to him. It is not, listen, if you're playing church, the same for you. If you're playing church, the same for you. If you're just reading your Bible, coming to church, and you don't have a personal born-again renewal, new heart, new change, new direction in your life, the same for you. There's no eternal security for you. But if you know you've been covered by the blood of Jesus, if you know you've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, if you know that you changed direction, it's not about what you did, it's about what he did, but you could be eternally secure in his hands. That's what this verse is telling us. The scripture tells us that we ought to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Okay? And, and, and we are to see and make sure that we are in the faith. You say, what about those people? They raised their hand. I, I've seen them give testimony, baptism. I've seen all that before. Yeah, well, John tells us that they went from us because they were never really part of us. First John 2, 19. And it's become plain. Look at, let's close at verse 29. I love this verse. We're going to look at it again next week. The Father's given everything into my hands. They're in my hands. You're secure. Verse 29. My Father has given them to me is greater than all. They're greater than everything in all the universe. And no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, wait a minute. Jesus, Father, gave them to Jesus. We're in Jesus' hand. Jesus, we're secure in his hand. Now, Jesus says, no one, Father's greater. No one can take them out of his hand. Which hand are we in? Verse 30. Why? I and the Father are one. Not just simply one in purpose. We're one with God in purpose. We want to bring him glory. We're one with God in purpose. We want to live on mission with him. This one in purpose has to do with omnipotent, all authority, power that Jesus has with the Father. You're in the Son's hand. You're in the Father's hand. 
No human could say that. We are one in the work of salvation. We are one in the preservation and security of the sheep. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. And we are safe in his arm. Look at verse 31. They wanted to kill him. They knew what he was trying to say. They knew it. We agree with what Jesus was saying. We just don't agree that it's blasphemy. Allstate commercial, right? You're in good hands with Allstate. (laughs) You're in good hands with God. The sheep could not be in better hands than the hand of the son and hand of the father. No one could be more secure than the sheep. Now watch this. The sheep of God are secured in the hand of God because of the outstretched hand of the shepherd. On the cross, this great shepherd dies, his hands spread open on the cross and cries out, it is finished. You can't add, you can't take a tra- away from that. And now the shepherd is saying, come. I laid down my life for you. My hands were open, my arms were open, and I was crucified for you on your behalf and in your place. I am the good shepherd who laid down my life. Come and lay down and, and yield your life to me. And I will be the good shepherd to carry. Have you ever done that? Now's the opportunity. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for this truth. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the good shepherd. That, Lord, you lead your people beside still waters. Lord, that you satisfy the soul. Lord Jesus, thank you that we are eternally secure in your hands because you stretched out your arms for us. And Lord, by believing on you, trusting in you, loving you, running to you, receiving the gift of salvation, we can be secure. Father, help us today to worship you and to lay down our silly, unwarranted questions and believe for all that you have shown us in Christ that we may have life in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.